Samuel chapter 30. And for a few moments, pastor wants to minister about moving from defeat to victory. And I would like to show you how David recovered everything that he lost. And so that's going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And I'm going to begin reading with verse number three. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Then if you'll come down to verse 19 and 20. And there was nothing lacking, lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil, neither anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. And David took all the flocks and herds, which they drave before those other cattle and said, this is David's spoil. Once again, the title of the message is moving from defeat to victory, how David recovered everything or recovered all. Let's pray. Father, for a few moments, I need you to help me to say something to these lovely people that have gathered to hear your word today. I pray, O oh God, that you would touch the one that may be infirmed, the one that may be praying right now, standing in the gap for a loved one or a friend that may be suffering affliction. We pray for our enemies, Lord, those that may be opposing us on our jobs or wherever the opposition may be occurring. But God, give us all ears to hear and help me to minister clearly and to unravel whatever may be complex as we magnify your son, Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. According to the story here, David had encountered some significant promotions from God. This man had gone from tending sheep to working in the palace and playing the harp for the king. Because David went out of his way and volunteered to fight a giant by the name of Goliath and defeated him, David found himself at the head of Saul's army. According to the text, after one mighty battle, when David was coming back into the city, the women lined the streets. They all began to sing a lovely song about David having killed thousands and thousands of people. Saul was displeased because these same ladies at one time would sing for him, but now they're singing the praises of David in an even greater fashion. Because of the lady's praise, jealousy emerged in the heart of Saul. 
Now, jealousy is a characteristic that I hope all of us will avoid, but we certainly know that it's in the scripture. The Bible goes so far as to say that jealousy is cruel as the grave. You may even have a marginal note that says it is hard. Some translations will say that jealousy is unrelenting. I can only tell you that jealousy brings about a slow spiritual death. It's like a vortex. And so many people get caught up in its gravitational pull. And when they find themselves in a state of jealousy, they slowly but surely die spiritually because of all of this envy. This man, Saul, was tormented because of his jealousy. It got so bad that one time at a dinner party, Saul grabbed a javelin, and the Bible says he threw the javelin at David and almost killed him, I'm sure, but David was able to get out of the way. Yet in all of these things, the Bible says that David behaved himself wisely. But David had sense enough to know that Saul wanted to kill him. So the scripture tells us that for 10 chapters, Saul hunted David like he was a wild goat across every hill, through every mountain place and in and out of the caves. And eventually David came to the conclusion in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1, that since he's been on the run for so long, there's only so long he can survive the wrath of Saul. And he began to believe that he would die. He thought about it. He was concerned about it. He said, nobody can live out here with 600 men like I am and just run from village to village and from one haunt to another haunt without Saul eventually catching up with us. So he came up with a plan and he went to the leader of their enemies, the Philistines. He went to a leader by the name of Achish and said, Achish, I need a place to live. And Achish said, you can come and stay with me. And Achish even gave David a city called Ziklag. Achish befriended David. He showed grace to David. David then used that particular city to launch raids in and out of the Philistine area. And David was going village to village and he was robbing, he was pillaging, he was plundering, and he was not leaving one man or woman alive to tell the story. And whenever Achish would come to see him, he would tell Achish that he was going into southern Judah or other places and raiding and plundering his own people, the Israelites. Isn't that amazing that the Philistine king had shown grace and favor to David and didn't even know what kind of man was standing in front of him? David took advantage of Achish's grace and favor. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had a patron in your life that provided things that you needed? Has somebody ever opened the door for you and done something for you that you definitely needed and you took advantage of the benefits that they provided to you and you lied to their face? This man, Achish, had no idea what David was doing. He was going from one village to the next, leaving carnage. And in the wake of all of that destruction, people were dead. And so there came an occasion in chapter 29 when David 
decided to join the Philistines when they had gathered their armies together to fight Israel. And all of these people were coming together in the valley places, the Philistines on one side with David and his 600 warriors, and all of the Israelites on the other side. David was going to go to war with his own people. David, the anointed of God, David, who was in covenant with God, was about to fight the other nation that was in covenant with God. Don't ever go to battle with your own people. God doesn't want you fighting Christians. I don't care how you're attacked by Christians, how people lie on you, how they try to undermine you and the things they may try to do to destroy your life. God's plan for you is not for you to fight against the people that are in covenant with God. But David was ready to go to war against Israel. This man knew that he was anointed to be king. Yet Saul and his men were chasing him. The Bible says that Achish's men, his generals, came to him and said, now look, we're getting ready to go to battle with Israel, and I want you to know right now, we, we, David is a fine guy, but we don't trust him. He's an Israelite himself. We'll get in the thick of the battle, and he'll turn against us and join his former, former allegiance. Send him home now. Achish said, absolutely not. There's nothing wrong with David. He's a good man. I haven't found any blemish in his life at all. Let him go to battle with us. And the general said, if you don't send him home, we're all leaving. And Achish went to David and explained the circumstances. And David had to leave. And according to the scripture, David and his men slept one more night with the Philistines, and then the next morning, they got up at dawn and started riding back to Ziklag. They rode all day, and at the end of the first day, they camped out again and went to sleep, got up the second day, rode all day, headed to Ziklag. Went to sleep the second night, got up the third day, and rode most of the day. And when they came within the vicinity of Ziklag, they saw the smoke that was ascending over the village. The Amalekites had come. David had no idea. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Off in the distance to see the smoke ascending in the sky and you're riding on a horse or a camel or a mule and then your slow little trot becomes more of a gallop. And the closer you get, you smell the ashes. You get into the city and you notice that homes have been dismantled. Mud huts have been knocked down. Smoldering fires are yet are yet burning all around that particular area. And 1 Samuel 30 verse 3 says, Behold, the city was burned with fire. There wasn't a human soul there. Not one son, not one daughter had been taken captive. Here was a place where you used to run and jump with the children. There's a soldier walking by his house where there was a bed where he once lay with his family. There was a small little courtyard area where they would cook food. And now all of that has been overturned and destroyed. And the scripture makes it very plain in verse four that the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. You would have cried, too. 
You ever seen anybody cry that hard? You ever seen anybody cry to the point that their tear ducts do not even produce tears anymore? These men were sitting there imagining the worst possible scenario for their sons. They were thinking maybe their sons were being shipped off and sold off into slavery. Imagining that their daughters and their wives were being ravished and physically assaulted by these Amalekite men. You say, well, maybe they weren't thinking like that. Well, if something like that were to happen to you and you knew the kinds of people that were in the area, don't tell me your thoughts wouldn't turn towards the dark side. It's exactly what happened to David and his men. They wept until they had no more power to weep. I've seen people weep and shake and convulse. Maybe you've done that in the past when your parents chastened you in a very harsh way. But I have seen people weep to the point they were inconsolable. Some of you will remember not too long ago, out at the Diversion Dam, some people drowned and lost their lives. I was home. My wife got a phone call requesting that I come over there to minister to people who were the widows, family members, these folks. So I got in my car and I drove over there. And I mean, sure enough, I got there. There were tents up all around the damn area where people had been spending the night. And apparently, you know, somebody had been doing a little bit of fishing or something. The undertow dragged somebody out. Another person got in, tried to rescue that one. Wasn't working for either one of them. Somebody else jumped in, tried to rescue them. And all of them lost their lives. And when I got on the scene, I walked over there to where law enforcement was. They gave me some information about what had been taking place. They told me where one of the victim's wives were. I'd already been talking to a family that had tried to save someone but wasn't able to, and I was consoling them and ministering to them. And I walked over to where this beautiful widow was with these lovely children and and almost in a state of shock, weeping, crying, unable to stop. How could she? What's supposed to be a family trip turned into a nightmare. And I watched as she wept and cried, and I saw counselors trying to console her. But the one thing I do know about secular counselors, they can't talk about God. And I can tell you right now, when people are passing through a tragedy, if you can't deal with the heart and deal with the mind and deal with God, it renders all of your techniques ineffective. I just stood back and watched. I'll return to that story. These men were weeping and crying. And it says that David's two wives had been taken. You said two wives, pastor. That's what the text says. I want you to understand that from Genesis chapter 4, verse 19, the first time polygamy begins in Scripture, it starts from the lineage of Cain. Several generations later, Lamech took two wives. 
Lamech was also one of the ones from the lineage of Cain that also murdered someone. It never was from the Garden of Eden, and it still isn't today the plan of God for any man or woman to have more than one spouse. In the beginning, God made Adam and Eve. In the New Testament, when Jesus talks about marriage in Matthew 19, he makes it very plain. Have you not read that which was in the beginning, how he made them male and female? And because of the hardness of men's heart, God gave the bill of divorcement. And when the Lord talks about leadership in a church, he talks about having a husband, a husband having one wife, not two wives, not three wives. Polygamy has never been the plan of God. God was gracious to David. And even though he and others in Scripture have had more than one spouse, God was gracious to them. And God's been gracious to a lot of people today. You say, does it go on today? Of course it does. Study the lives of the Mormons. Study the lives of the Muslims. Study the lives of Americans. Here you have a man that'll be married to one woman in a town. Then off in two or three other towns have concubines on the side with their own separate families. Don't tell me polygamy doesn't go on in this nation. It may not be sanctioned and licensed by the government, but there are multitudes of men that are fathering children all across this nation with different women they try to treat as their wives. That doesn't make it right. But it's still happening. But David's heart was broken. His wives were gone. He's got nothing but memories. Sons and daughters are lost. And verse 6 says that David was greatly distressed. Why was he distressed? Because he saw what had been lost. Here was a man that was raiding and plundering other villages. And his warrior men are sitting around thinking about the lives that they had taken. The people that they had harmed. And now here they are sitting in the exact same predicament they created for other people. Don't you ever forget that old proverb that says you'll reap what you sow. That what goes around comes around. What goes up must come down. That if you very often dig a ditch for others to fall in it, you'll find that your feet will be sliding into that hole. David was greatly distressed. He was burdened in his mind. It got so bad that in verse 6, the people spake of stoning him. They wanted him dead. Have you ever been that angry before? Has anybody ever done anything to you or against you that made you want to rise up and kill them? I've told you before, I'm probably one of the only few people you've ever met or ever will meet that has actually seen a stoning and beheadings and all of that in real life. In Saudi Arabia saw a gal that had been accused of adultery, as my driver was telling me. And I saw as thousands of people came out of the mosque, gathered in the courtyard of the mosque. They brought this young lady out. Couldn't have been but 14, 15. I may even be exaggerating then. A little, little girl to me from, from my perspective. And they tied her down with a rope. And a dump truck pulled up with small stones and rocks. 
It was small enough to be grabbed by an individual hand. And I watched as one by one they chucked rocks at this woman and she died. And I saw as she was trying to block them with her hands. And I saw people coming up close to her, making sure they could hit her until she stopped moving. These people were so angry at David, they wanted to stone him. They stoned Stephen in the book of Acts. You read about it. They even stoned Paul and left him for dead. But the saints came and stood around him and God raised him up. I'm only trying to emphasize to you the emotions that was involved with this. They have lost everything, personal possessions, family, family heirlooms. And the scripture says in verse 6, the soul of the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. You want to make somebody mad? Bother their children. You want to see somebody get angry and upset, bother their son or their daughter. You'll bring out the kinds of emotions that you didn't even know existed in that individual. There have been a lot of mothers that have pulled out shotguns and taken the lives of people because somebody harmed their son or daughter. Been a lot of dads that have gone to jail because they end up sticking a knife in somebody that that had attacked their daughter or bothered their wife. And verse six is very plain. The people were talking about it. David was within earshot of all of these people and they're talking about killing him. They're saying David is to blame. He's supposed to be our leader. We've been following him. He's led us into this valley. He's taken us to this ditch. My daughter and my wife may be raped right now simply because I've been chasing after this man who is supposed to be the anointed of God. And David hears all of this. But the key, folks, is that, that even though David was greatly distressed, the final sentence of verse 6 shows us how to move from defeat to victory. It says, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. First thing you've got to do is get your eyes off of your circumstances and your problems. You say, Pastor, that's easier said than done. Well, if you're here today and you're in the parking lot or in this sanctuary and you have anything in your life comparable to the burning of Ziklag, I want to talk to you after service. Because if David could lift his eyes and get them off of his circumstances, you can do the exact same thing. Lift your eyes to the hills from which cometh your help. Knowing that God is the one that surrounds all of your circumstances that are surrounding you. Knowing that God is greater than every problem that you cannot solve. It says that this man got his eyes off of his problems. And that's what we have to do. Nobody can do this for you. I can't follow you around uh, the rest of the week, you can't follow me around the rest of the week and try to get me in, in the right place where I need to be. Somebody has got to lift their eyes and stop thinking about and reflecting on and meditating on their problems and begin to see and envision that God is greater. So notice what it says. David encouraged himself. And you have to do this. 
You cannot build your life on the claims and feelings that others hold or have about you. Some people may not like you. So what? Some people may love you excessively. So what? Why do you have to be the kind of person that makes everybody happy? Why do you have to go out of your way to try to please everybody so that you won't offend anybody? But typically, when you live your life like that, you inevitably offend someone anyhow. Learn to encourage yourself rather than looking for other people to to give you an answer. This man David encouraged himself. That means to fortify, to strengthen to make oneself stronger wherever you are. It doesn't matter the valley. It doesn't matter the trial. It doesn't matter the difficulty. The geography has nothing to do with it at all. You can encourage yourself. And there's something you have to do. You, you can call pastor and pastor will pray with you on the telephone and pastor will be right there to make you smile and tease and try to put, put some kind of humor in the middle of all of it so that you'll be a happy camper. But I'm telling you, when it's all over at some point, you and I both will put the telephone down. We'll go our separate ways and you're going to have to learn to encourage yourself. This is what David had to do. Everybody hates him right now. People have turned against him. He's got ashes burning and ashes laying all around him. And he's got small little fires that he can see. And all he's got are memories. This man decided, I'm not going to spend my life just holding on to a memory. He got up and encouraged himself. Now, how exactly do you do that? Well, notice it says here he encouraged himself in the Lord. Now that's where you begin. That's where you begin. Encourage yourself in the Lord. Well, pastor, how do I encourage myself in the Lord? Well, I'm glad you're thinking that thought and I just read your mind. Okay. So here is how you do that. Number one, begin to go through the Bible, find stories of people where God supplied for them, preserved them, multiplied them, helped them, aided them, assisted them in any way. And I promise you, when you read through that, you'll realize God is not a respecter of persons. Hebrews 13 and 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever, that what God was, he is. Who he is, he will be. He will do things for you in the future, just like he will today. So build your life upon the testimonies of Scripture and upon the stories in the Word of God. And when everybody else is telling you God won't do it, and they're saying to you there's no way God's going to bring you through this, you continue to read the text of the Word and build your heart, your mind, your strength upon what the Scripture says. The doctor may tell you you won't get better. But God's arm isn't shortened that it cannot save. He's strong enough to handle you. So that's the first point. Build your life upon what the text says. Then secondly, think about the miracles and the things that God has done for your friends. Think about people that you've known. 
The stories, the testimonies that they've shared with you about how God has blessed them and supplied for them when mom and dad would tell you about how they didn't have anything. But God went out of his way to supply the need that you had. Build your life upon those testimonies. That's how you encourage yourself in the Lord. I have people all the time ask me, Pastor, why do you share so many stories about what God has done for different people? Because I'm trying to encourage you. I'm trying to encourage me. Every day of this life, we are needing opportunities to remember what God has done. We hear enough bad news on the news. Turn on the television. They always tell you hundreds of thousands of people are dying from COVID. You turn on the television, you hear nothing about, you hear nothing but stories about people marching in the streets and burning down businesses and robbing and looting. Hear stories of people being shot, stories of murder that's taking place. Somebody needs to share some testimonies regarding the power of God and how God helped grandma and how God helped auntie. And that's why I tell stories and testimonies of the greatness of God. The other thing I'd say you can do to encourage yourself is to reflect on things that God has done for you in your life personally. Now, you may say, well, pastor, I, I, I don't know that I really can think of any prayers that I've ever prayed or of anything supernaturally that God has ever done for me. And my response to you is that you not be so naive to think that you got to where you are right now without the help of God. Yeah, you, you really need to think about that. How did you get to where you are unless God helped you at every intersection in your life? Except God, when he brought you to a number of open doors, closed certain doors so that other doors or one door would be open unto you. Now, one time Tiffany and I were driving and we just thought, you know, why don't we why don't we sit here and think about various times where God has done something for us that we know we could never have done. And it would have had to have been God in order for it to happen. And so as we were driving, she pulled out a a pen and paper. We started writing. I started making statements. She started making statements. And pretty soon, first page was filled up. Second page was filled up. And we just kept on going. And, and the reason an exercise like that is, is important, as far as I'm concerned, is it's one thing to know that God is God in the Bible. It's something totally different to know he's God in your life. And you can take stories like that and lay them up as an evident testimony of the power of God. Because we can remember when God supplied for us when we didn't have but a couple of cents to rub together. We can remember when God came through and supplied for us when we were ill in our body. We can remember when God supplied for us in meetings that we preached, things that were taking place. I've got one I'm thinking of right now. I was gone away to preach. I don't think we'd been married two or three years. And, and, and Tiffany had given me, I think, just about all the free money we had just so I could go on this trip. 
and I'd be able to eat while I was gone to go preach this revival. And so she was back here and didn't tell me she didn't have any money at all in her pocket. Certainly wasn't any in any kind of account. But we had somebody ministering one of the services and felt like God had put it on her heart for the church to take up an offering and just give over into Tiffany's bosom. Folks, you can't tell me that wasn't God. I didn't know anything about it until I got back, but I knew that was God. And, and Tiffany certainly knew it was God, too. God will move mountains. Well, somebody will take the time to pray. I'm trying to tell you how to encourage yourself in the Lord. That's what I'm talking to you about. And every now and then, I, that list I keep by, by my bedside, but every now and then I pull that list out and I just kind of look at it and just think about the things that God had, had did, done up to that time. I could pull it out now. We could probably add five or six more pages to it just because of how good he's been. And I recommend you do that also. David encouraged himself in the Lord. What else can we do? Praise him, worship him. Create an environment that is hospitable to his presence. Turn off all of that, that television that's discouraging you, depressing you, angering you, making your blood boil and causing you to rage. Just turn it off for a season. Don't even listen to some of that stuff. Find you some music that's going to glorify God and magnify Christ and make him better. Stop reading, or I should say stop singing all them songs about somebody having left somebody else and somebody's dog that ran away and your version of the blues. Leave all of that alone and begin to sing the songs that make God bigger than your problems. David encouraged himself in the Lord. You know, some of them old songs come back to mind. You know, I'm thinking about that song, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name, Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. Now, I've got enough sense to know that I don't have a voice that sounds as good as Carrie Underwood. Well, I can tell you one thing, there ain't never been a song she's made that's going to bring the presence of God into your car like the song we just sang. So when you understand that you can create an environment and an atmosphere that is hospitable to the presence of God, you'll become encouraged. Yeah, keep, keep singing those songs that depress you. I can, I can promise you life will keep going downhill. 
But if you want to magnify the king and find yourself up on top of Mount Zion, you're going to have to open up your mouth and create a garden of praise and glorify him. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. You'll notice the final two words of verse 6. You've got that personal pronoun there. It's, it's possessive, folks. It's his. This man has lost his wives. All of his men have lost their sons and daughters. All of this is attributable to David's actions. And they are all seated, seated now in the, in the consequences of their actions. And David has lost everything. The Amalekites have come and robbed the people. But the one thing they could never take away from David was his God. And you may have a spouse that turns and walks away from you. You may have a job that lets you go. You may have to leave one area and move to another. You may have had one trial after another in your life that has separated you from your loved ones. But I can tell you the devil can never rob you of your God. You say, Pastor, you don't understand. Ziklag is burning down all around me. Ziklag may be burning down, but you haven't lost your God. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. If you're going to move from a defeated life, from a defeated mind, from a state of defeat to a place of victory, you're going to have to realize that God is yet in your life, regardless of how you feel, despite your emotions. You've got to get involved with praising and worshiping God. First the natural, then the spiritual. First the natural Adam, then the spiritual Adam. I don't always feel like coming to church. I'm like some of you. I don't always feel like singing the songs of Zion. There have been plenty of times where I've rolled over and said to my wife, oh my goodness, can't somebody else go to church this morning? Does it have to be me that go down there? Why can't I just sit home and do like some of them do? Just sit in the lazy boy chair, watch the Hallmark Channel or some, or some kind of program on sports or something. Why do I have to go? And she's got to remind me because, honey, you're the pastor. You're the pastor. So I get up out of that bed, I get dressed, and I move in the natural, but I'm telling you, when I get into the presence of people that love God, the spiritual, it breaks out because first the natural, then the spiritual. You don't feel like praying when you begin to pray, but once you're done praying, you're so glad you came to pray. So glad you prayed. Yeah. David encouraged himself. You say, Pastor, what happened then? Well... This man, David, at this point, he called for the preacher. Notice verses seven and eight. He called for the preacher. He wanted to find the will of God. Why was it important for him to call for the preacher? Well, until his mood and his condition changed, he had no desire to even see a preacher. Returning to the, to the young lady that, that I had to talk to that was there at the uh, diversion dam. She was weeping and she was crying. I just stood back and watched as other people were trying to talk to her. And then after a while, I finally eased on over there and I said something to this effect. I said, ma'am, I want you to know I cannot begin to understand your grief at having lost a husband. Looking at them beautiful kids. But I did say I know somewhere at the end of this valley God's going to be there and his arms are going to be open wide and his love for you will not have changed. 
And then I just backed away, backed away. You said, why? Because I know that when Ziklag is burning and people's lives are in trouble, they have a hard time listening to a preacher. Many people don't even want to see a preacher when trouble comes. I didn't say everybody, but there are some people like that. You open up your mouth and begin to talk. They're in shock. They can't stop crying. They're weeping. Your words are coming to them like an echo in a long tunnel. Everything seems to be hazy. They're in a fog. They're not even clear-minded. They're trying to think, what am I going to do now? I don't have a husband. How am I going to look after myself? All of these things are coming as a collision in their lives. But because David took the time to encourage himself in the Lord, he could then say, bring the preacher. And that's when you know healing is taking place in a man or woman's life. Not when the preacher has to go and chase behind somebody and say, well, how come you haven't called me and I've been waiting on you to visit with me? No, when they open up their mouth and they pick up the telephone and they grab a piece of paper and write a letter and they call for the man or woman of God, you know healing is taking place. It's taking place. We try to produce healing very often when people aren't ready to be healed, or I should say, don't want to be healed. You have to want to be made whole. David was surrounded by angry people. He said, Lord, should we pursue? In verse 8, the Lord said, pursue and overtake them. Ten powerful words. Pursue and overtake them. So David gathered his men, as you can see in verse 9, the 600 men, they came to the brook. You say, what's significant about that? Remember, these are the same 600 men that just a few moments earlier wanted to kill him. But because David has spiritually realigned himself and put himself in a position where he knows he's going to go on with God if nobody else goes on with him, then God is able to get all of his troop in alignment. If you want your home to get realigned, you get yourself in line with God. Stop waiting on everybody else to get right with God. You get right with God. You encourage yourself in God. You stop waiting for some kid to call you or for some relative or some enemy to start treating you in a nice way. Get yourself in good graces with God and let God handle the rest of the people that are connected with you. They came to the brook, splashed some water on their face, and they said, look, we're ready to fight. Let's, let's do this. Where is it going to be at? And David and them start rolling out there in the forest somewhere. 200 of the 600 couldn't go because they were just too weary. But they found a man who had been part of the company that had raided Ziklag. And David made a promise to him, if you take us to the Amalekites, we won't kill you. He led them to where they were. And the Bible says from twilight in the evening to the evening of the next day. David and his men went to battle again and rescued their wives, their sons, and their daughters. And the scripture makes it very plain in verses 18 and 19, David recovered all. Wasn't anything that was left behind, folks. So if you're going to go to battle against the devil and you're going to 
resist him, then you've got to resist him till victory comes. You can't just resist him once. You've got to resist him 120 times. As often as he comes, you fight. You want to see your children saved and stand your ground regardless of how they're acting for however long the battle takes place. You have to be faint yet pursuing. That's how one army was during the Civil War. It says that many of these people had been battling for week in and week out. When it came time for this one particular company to die, they had it chiseled on their gravestones that when we died, we were faint, yet pursuing. We all get tired, but you've got to go on and press on for the king. When David came back with all of the spoil, you know what he did? Even the 200 people that were too weary to go on, he divided it amongst them and his own men started grumbling and complaining and said, why in the world should we share anything with these lazy folks that didn't even go to battle with us? And David said they're part of our group and said those that go to war will share with those that stay back by the stuff because we're all one group. They were too tired to go. And so you have the story there somewhat of what the Lord does for us. Jesus was envied, distrusted, ultimately betrayed and slandered. Achish confessed to men that he found no blemish. In David, Pilate said, I find no fault in Jesus. David was distressed as well as his men, but Jesus, who knew no sin, became our sin, climbed up on the cross to relieve the distress and the griefs of men. He bore our griefs and our sorrows and our infirmities. And when he came up out of that grave, he ascended to heaven. And you know what he did? Sat down on the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says we're now seated with him in heavenly places. What did he do? Having spoiled the powers and principalities, he has shared the spoil with you and with me. And he never one time and said, never one time said, baby Christians aren't going to get anything from me. He shared the spoil with everybody. So this place called Ziklag, it had been a place of sorrow, tragedy, calamity, and tears, finds once again that hundreds of family members have gathered here, and it's now a place of rejoicing. They're weeping again, but now they're weeping for joy. A place that had been a scene of unspeakable horrors, it's now become a place of unspeakable joy. God knows how to return your joy to your life. And if you think about the things that Christ has done for you and stop worrying about ziklag that has burned, you'll realize that as long as you still have your God, you can rebuild the city again. As long as you have God, you can rebuild your life. As long as you have your family, you can make another home. Just because a house burns down, it's not the end of all things. God has a plan, and God can do wonderful, wonderful things. So in closing, the scripture says that this man David took all the flocks and herds, in verse 20, and drave those other cattle. And they said, this 
is David's Paul. David led them to battle. When they lost everything, they blamed David. When they gained everything back, they praised David. And you need to remember that in your life, the most important thing for you is to know that your heavenly father has not turned his back on you. Do you feel like you've lost a lot? Do you feel like the adversary has come into your life and robbed you of those things that are precious? I give you my word, folks. You serve a God that is mighty. You serve a God that is powerful. And you serve a God that won't ever turn his back on you. You're enjoying the blessings of the spoils of Christ because he died on that cross for you. I guess you can signify amen by blowing them horns this morning. Amen. Oh, it's a great day to be alive if you're alive. So glad we get the fellowship down here on the south end. We do want everybody to have a blessed, blessed week. We will stay in touch. And remember, we'll be doing this for several weeks. And we're praying all them numbers come down and they will.